for the word of the Lord. Loving God, through your Holy Spirit, grant us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts and will to respond in ways which honour you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to a section in Luke's Gospel as we've been following these readings um, of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem, what's known as the travel narrative. And uh, Luke chapter 17 sort of stands out because it actually has no consistent organising principle. Elsewhere in Luke, chapter 15, we have the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Um, Chapter 16, we've had the parable about the unworthy servant and the uh, the dishonest manager and the rich man in Dives and about the whole themes around stewardship. When we come to chapter 17, it's almost as if Luke has a few pieces left over of Jesus teaching it. He wants to include somewhere, so he throws it into this particular section. So it's actually hard to organise a coherent service or a, a, a sermon around those particular themes. But the overarching theme is of discipleship. For those who would follow Jesus as he moves towards Jerusalem, he prepares them for the realities of life and uh, how to respond in a way which is faithful. So in this particular section in Luke, there are four main elements. There's a warning, there is an instruction, there is a lesson, and there is a reminder. And as I say, there's no particular logic as to how they all connect up other than they all are teachings of Jesus. I'm going to focus in particular on the lesson about the mustard seed, but it's worth noting and highlighting the importance of the other aspects. First of all, the warning is a serious warning about anyone who causes the little ones to stumble. The little ones are both children and those who are particularly vulnerable, those who need to be cared for and nurtured and protected. And Jesus says that if anyone causes the little ones to, uh, to be tempted to lose their way or to stumble in their faith, then that is an enormous uh, indictment on those who have responsibilities for their care and their nurture. That in itself is a significant warning to the church, where it has to be said over uh, many decades as we've looked at our history, the, the church, including the Anglican church, has failed to protect the little ones entrusted to us and there have been occasions when they have been caused to uh, to doubt and to lose their way so that in itself is a significant warning the instruction that Jesus gives is about the importance of forgiveness and uh, this is a theme that Jesus gave gave on uh, many occasions and constantly reminded that people will do the wrong thing by you, people will wrong you, and it's appropriate to rebuke them, to call them out for what may be wrong. But the big game changer that Jesus mentioned in the kingdom of God is that instruction to be generous in offering forgiveness. And elsewhere, Jesus reminds the disciples that just as 
we have received God's generosity in forgiveness, so we too are to show that in our willingness to forgive others. And I know those words won't be new, we hear them time and again, but it is a continual challenge, isn't it? When people wrong us, not just to keep hold of that, to keep record of it, and to not let go. In the end, that actually can choke us. It can actually cause a bitterness within us. So Jesus says, not only if we uh, uh, call someone out on it and seek their contrition, their repentance, and to forgive them, Jesus goes beyond that and says, look, even if seven times in one day it all happens and you say, you're back again, you've done the wrong thing again, you keep on doing it. And you might have cause to question, are you sincere about your repentance? But Jesus says, keep on showing that generosity of forgiveness because that will change our lives. It'll change culture. It'll change relationships. So so I'm going to come back to the lesson about the power of the one in whom we place our faith, the power of the mustard seed. And to finish up just in this overview the reminder at the end is that, uh, not really a parable, but Jesus points a series of questions where he expects the answer is to be, of course, that if servants who have been out on the field, uh, slaves have been out in the field taking care of sheep and working in the field and come in at night, would they expect to be fed and just provided for alongside the master? No, they would expect that they continue to do what is expected of them. They would provide the meal, the, all that is needed, and then they can sit down and be fed. It's actually harsh for us to hear that dynamic where we would normally say, look, show appreciation, show some uh, generosity. But Jesus is pointing out this was, is what is expected of those servants. Should they expect to be thanked for doing what is their duty? No, it's actually just doing the right thing. And that translates into our own context is a reminder that we shouldn't seek reward or thankfulness as to what motivates why we do things. We should be doing what we do because it is the right thing to do. It is the duty we owe the master. So Jesus says, don't be looking around just to try and gain favour in some way by doing these things. It's the third of those, the lesson, that I want to focus on a touch more. And it comes in the context of a question where the apostles have been hearing this teaching of Jesus and just how challenging it can be to live that life of faith. And they say, Lord, increase our faith. How can we be stronger? If we had more faith, this would be perhaps a little bit easier for us to follow. So Jesus tells uh, points to two um, illustrations in contrast. One of the two is the mustards, the, uh, sorry, is the mulberry bush. Now it actually happens, we have a mulberry bush in the back garden in the rectory. They are deciduous, so it's actually not nearly as green as that particular one. It is a favourite tree already of uh, Gideon, in particular one of our grandchildren, who runs into the back garden of the rectory and just looks disappointed as though it's our fault and it's gone for a winter season. 
we can tell them the buds are just beginning to grow. But it is a delight. You can go there when it's in full bloom and the, the, you, uh, the children emerge with significantly stained faces and hands as they've been grabbing the fruit. Jesus is pointing to something that was all around the landscape in his day. A mulberry tree, much like this one. Pretty rugged, pretty strong. And the thing about a mulberry tree is that they are not only robust, they're pretty hard to move. They put down a deep taproot, but they were renowned for just their web of surface roots that goes out and hold them strong. They were renowned for their ability to withstand the wind. Now, I'm sure I'm not alone in over the years of seeking to take out some trees and some shrubs from a garden. Some of them come out quite easily, quite a satisfying way. Um, others are pretty stubborn, and as much as you dig around and you try and get it, it's just so hard to, to extract them, and that is the nature of a mulberry tree. They were renowned as incredibly hard to move. So Jesus is just pointing to two items that will be very familiar to make his point. The contrast, of course, is between the, the stubbornness and the strength and the robustness of the mulberry tree and something as small as a grain of mustard. And so we have these little mustard seed grains. And uh, Jesus says, do not underestimate just how powerful that little mustard seed is when it's used as it ought to be, when it's nourished. And so the contrast points to the life of faith. They ask for, increase our faith. And Jesus says, it's actually not about how big your faith is, it's about the richness of that faith and releasing the power of that richness. Now, there's a danger in hearing these passages in a way in which if we feel as though we are going through challenges in life, whether we are having various hardships or setbacks or even catastrophes that we've experienced, and we've prayed about them, yet they still remain. It is a danger within the church, within faith communities, to feel as though in some way that's your failure. It's our failure. If we had prayed harder, if we had bigger faith, then these things wouldn't happen. It gets us into that space of uh, the advice of Job's friends. You know, the book, the book in the Old Testament, the book of Job, where Job experiences a whole lot of catastrophes in his life. And he doesn't know why it's happening. And he has the sort of friends that you really don't want to have. The friends gather around and just sit looking at him for a week without saying a word. That would have been freaky in itself. When they eventually start speaking and giving advice, they say, well, it's obviously some failure on your part. You've obviously sinned in some way. You have, haven't shown enough faith in some way, and that's why these catastrophes are occurring to you. So tell us, what is it you've got so wrong? It's what we would describe as gaslighting. It's actually saying, you're the problem, you're the fault. And that can be an incredibly dangerous thing to do. And there is a spiritual version of it within the church to say, well, it's obviously something that you have failed in spiritually that these things are happening. Now, in Job's case, there was a whole lot of things happening in the background to which he was totally unaware. In fact, he never, it never revealed to him. It's actually a, 
spiritual confrontation between Satan, the accuser, and God, saying people like Job are only following you because their life is easy. Let's make it more difficult and see if he still has faith. But Job never knows that. And so in our own life and experience, we should not be so arrogant or foolish to presume we can step into other people's lives and explain why things are happening. We don't know that. That is for God to know. So it's not it's important that we don't hear this passage of feeling as though well, if only we had bigger faith, like the apostles cried out. The point here is, is the very smallest is the encouragement. It being a small seed does not diminish the power of the seed, the mustard seed. Pretty potent, I imagine. So the point is made that if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus is not saying that you have this some uh, supernatural power, let alone some sort of magical quality that you can do and command all these extraordinary things. He's talking about the gospel and the power of the gospel to change our world our immediate world, and also the world at large. A couple of quotes that really get to the point of it. This is one by a, a writer called Pete Grieg. Pete Grieg um, has written some terrific books about prayer. Prayer for Ordinary People, I think, is one of the books. Uh, is that right? How to Pray, A Guide for Normal People. Thank you. Uh, uh, Fiona got onto him first and he really writes in a very down-to-earth sort of way and another book that he's written I haven't read the book but I came across this quote uh, this, this week um, from the book called Dirty Prayer and I think this describes the nature of what does the grain of mustard seed look like when it comes to prayer Pete Grieg says the point of prayer is not the power that releases but the person it reveals the person being Jesus the point of prayer is not the power that it releases but the person it reveals I don't pray because I'm into prayer I pray because I'm into Jesus and so we talk I don't believe in the power of prayer I believe in the power of Jesus so I ask for his help a lot love that quote and that's where the power of the mustard seed is not in us, but in where we are placing our faith, the one in whom we trust. So it's more of a call for us to be faithful, to grow in our faithfulness in our life of faith and trust and commitment. Another quote, this one from a, uh, a theologian known as Karl Barth. Um, Karl Barth is a significant theologian, German theologian, writing from the 1930s through to the 1950s. Um, his 12-volume book on systematic dogmatics, the church dogmatics, is about six million words, mostly almost incomprehensible, even the Fakus in German. But occasionally, outside that, when he, he speaks more popularly, he has these great insights. It was Karl Barth who talked about the importance of pastors knowing not only their Bibles but opening their newspapers um, and it's Karl Barth who has this phrase to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder 
of the world. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Now, again, I'm pretty sure I'm in good company to say that following the news at the present time is pretty depressing. Certainly the global news. And we hear about superpowers and about so-called saber-rattling and about atrocities and threats and things that are just unimaginable. And we can feel overwhelmed in the face of that sort of power. What can we do to make a difference? Well, we can make an enormous difference. And we should never underestimate the power of our prayer. That's why it's been uh, lovely to introduce our little prayer table. A gesture of just lighting a candle or prayer makes a difference. A few weeks back on the Friday morning, we had a, our, uh, what will be an hour quarterly event every three months of a, a gathering for a prayer time. And uh, we were led through a whole series of just different ways to focus and shape our prayers. And it was a really productive period. I came away so encouraged by it. We have um, put a pause on our Tuesday morning prayer meetings at the moment, for, but not that we don't want to pray, but we want to find the right time to pray. So we'll be consulting as to, for those who are available for a, um, an early morning prayer time once a week, what will be a good time for us to gather together. So intentionality behind that is part of our spiritual discipline as a church. So where does it take us? The readings we have, as it happens, we're... Following the common lectionaries, I said last week, which is used by churches right around the world, and we're working our way through 1 and 2 Timothy, and we're working our way through Luke's travel narrative. And there's no intentional way of linking the two up, we just have the two readings side by side. But as is so often the case, one informs the other, and uh, they complement each other. And so too I would see it this week, and a similar theme is happening um, I love this little statement. I challenge you just to quietly say it into a mirror during the week. Find yourself in a mirror and just say this little saying. Or even say it under your breath if someone's getting under your skin. I've got a mustard seed and I'm not afraid to use it. It works for me anyway as a little quirk. We have come in our readings to, in the lectionary readings, to 2 Timothy this week and chapter 1. For some reason, the letters to Timothy appeal to me for some reason in my life, especially in these particular verses. Fan into flame the gift of God, Paul says to Timothy, which is in you. You know, when you see a, a fire or something there and you just need to fan it into flame, provide some oxygen help it to grow and to fan. Paul says that the working of God is in not just Timothy, but in all of us. The Spirit is present. But we do have the danger, the capacity to quench the Spirit, to extinguish it. Paul says that we should fan it into flame and see what God can do in and through us. At the end of our service um, today, we're going to have a piece um, after the final blessing, which picks up that theme, yet not I, but Christ who is in me. 
and I'll be encouraging you there at this, this stage just to reflect on that. It's actually not about us. It's about God who's within us, about Christ who's in us, about the Spirit who is at work in us. Paul says, fan it into flame. And then he says, well, and this is the power that we have been entrusted with. Now, it's a little bit hard to read off the screen, um, but I just like the way it was shaped. So this is, again, quoting from the same passage, and it picks up the same theme about that. Do not underestimate how powerful what is entrusted to us. God did not give us um, a spirit of fear and timidity. It's often spoken to me at different stages of my life. God did not give us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. This is what we have available to us, personally and as church communities. I have to tell you that a number of times as a bishop, as I've travelled around different churches and they talk about their hopes and dreams for ministry, very often I hear the phrase, if only, if only we had some more resources, if only we had this and that. And I will push back and say, actually, don't underestimate what you already have available to us. When it comes to resources, we in the Western world, we in places like Adelaide, have church resources that others could only dream of. Church planting in, the, uh, in Africa is literally a church gathers under trees. Yet there is a vibrancy and there's a growth because they recognise that God's working within his people makes a difference. We have resources. We have a capacity to contribute and to partner in that. It's a question of our faith, of our loyalty, of our dedication to the work of God. So we'll finish on that note as to how, does, how do these passages speak to us personally, our willingness to release, to let go, to contribute, to partner, to put into practice that which is, or put into use that which has been entrusted to us. Jesus says, a seed as small as a mustard seed is powerful even compared to a mulberry bush. So the spiritual reality is what has been given to us, not to hide, not to bury, not to tuck away, but to put into the use for which God is calling us. Amen.